This is Strange Assembly episode 259, Legend of the Five Rings role-playing, GMing for new players. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Slavin. Uh, hello. And we are going to be talking today about the uh, Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game from Fantasy Flight, and in particular, we're going to be talking about game mastering for new players, because there's definitely a, a vibe to Rokugan and Legend of the Five Rings that is, I think, pretty distinctive, certainly from your you know, traditional sword and sorcery, even though it is a fantasy role-playing game that, in fact, has both swords and magic. Yes, a distinct uh, amount of swords and sorcery, although they call them katana, I believe, in this setting. So that just shows you one way that Rokugan is a little bit different from uh, Neverwinter. Is that a place? That is a place. Okay. And uh, yeah, Chris, I know that both you and I have um, significant experience with the setting, and I think we both would say that on first glance, the, the fluff and the lore are potent and thorough. There's just an awful lot if you go into the relatively inconsistent wiki for the previous iteration of the intellectual property. And um, that even contradicts uh, many of you, um, or at least many of the people that I, that I see on Facebook, are saying that they're coming back to the setting after an amount of time away from it. And so you might recall things that are slightly different from the fluff now, which might be slightly different than whatever the writers in, uh, you know, 2010 retcon something to be. And so th there's a ton of fluff. And I think what I would just say is, like, ignore as much of it as you, as you really need to, which probably is most of it. And just, in, in general, the lore should not penalize characters, should not penalize new players. A new player... You should never make them feel stupid or disadvantaged because they did not know to refuse a gift three times, as is uh, common practice, you know, to show that you're polite. And so I would encourage your players. I think L5R should feel like an exciting set of possibilities um, that also happens to be wrapped up in an oppressive social structure and uh, kind of kooky ethical code. But I, I think your players should feel free and excited and shouldn't be tied down to just an absolute ton of fluff. Yeah, and, and there's even, I think, two layers to the fluff and how much they matter. I mean, part of the fluff that you're talking about when you're talking about retcons and the two different versions of the setting is really the sort of extensive world building, which really, who cares? If you can go, you can find L5R books that essentially detail every bloody square inch of Rokugan. There are so many source books at this point, and that really doesn't matter. If you have a player who objects because you did not put, you know, West Mountain Village in exactly the right spot in Crablands, get yourself a new player? I mean... Yes, yes. Feed them to some uh, demons and start over. Uh, yeah. One of the things I actually really like about the setting and the way that um, the current book puts together character creation is just the focus on the characters and on what their goals and their desires are, because most of that doesn't really matter with any of the fluff, right? It's a question of what is your character's duty? 
And then what does your character really want out of life? And then uh, it's up to you, the, the GM and also the player, to come up with fun and interesting ways for them to fail at their duty and to be deprived of what they will find joy from. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, and, and the standard way to do this is to ensure that the duty and their desires conflict and classic samurai drama. Certainly. Yeah, I think I would say that um, one of the things about the setting that I think you're getting at is is to mix freedom and restraint, just as I think uh, most successful GMs will try and mix up successes for the party along with failure or um, uh, you know significant setbacks. I think the setting is one of like freedom where you are you know magical samurai and you have wealth and power and peasants are theoretically obligated to pay attention to you and do whatever you want, but then also you are tied down to Bushido and to the expectations of your lord and everyone around you and all that. And I think um, mixing those two together can can create a really fun, interesting environment for your players. I think when you go down to the sort of basic things, while the world building stuff isn't important, some of the cultural aspects are, although you're absolutely right not to ticky-tack people, but certainly the the sort of more restrained face centric social culture of rokugan you do want to convey that though right the the important thing is to convey the sense that things are done differently here without punishing a player especially a new player for not knowing or slipping up on exactly what the precise etiquette phrasing of something is. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think that that's one of the challenges that like new players have. They're used to being rewarded with loot and uh, other loot. Um, and that's not really what the setting is about. One thing I would suggest as a GM very early on is just trying to drive home to your players how important their reputations are. And if you can have a character succeed at something one game and then have an NPC make reference to that success a little bit later, you know, I think that helps drive home to the character that what they do matters in a way that isn't, you know, just directly tied to their character sheet, which is, you know, somewhat of the focus, I think, in a lot of the maybe D20 games where you're you're legitimately trying to find loot for each slot on your character's character sheet. The loot thing you definitely can't do, although you do have the blunt force tool of handing out honor and glory and and such for behaving in appropriate ways. Mm. So, I mean, you can, if you want, right, right off the bat with a, you know, even if you're just doing test of the Topaz champion being like, oh, you behaved very well and accorded yourself highly properly before these you know, these high-status samurai gain a point of honor. It is okay to give give people carrots. Mm. Yeah, you do need to make it very, very clear if you've got players who are coming exclusively from a, a I mean, let's just say, right, D&D, Pathfinder, whatever background, and a very mechanistically loot-focused, you know, iteration of those games, you definitely want players to not expect to get items, because that basically never happens in this game. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. And and one one thing I actually like to do, um, just to show players that the setting is a little bit different, 
is I'll give them something completely useless, right? Something that in no way can be used to kill someone else, like a fan or like a dopey musical instrument or something like that, or even like a beautiful but temporary work of art, and uh, make it clear to the player that this is an important thing and that maybe someday later I'll give them some sort of minor benefit as a character goes, oh, yes, I, I know, you know, I know that character. Uh, you got one of her fans. Uh, you you must be a competent warrior. <laughs> Come, have a drink with me, or something like that. And so you're you're handing out loot, but you're doing it in a more reputational way. Um, and I think I think players, you know, still respond to that and still respond to the idea that something exciting is happening and that they've made some forward progress. Um, it's just is like tricking the reward centers of their brain a little bit differently. The whole like you're not going to get loot is a very foundational sort of thing, but there's also often a level of brashness that is involved in a lot of role-playing games where you have to, like you said, you, you have to sort of manage players having freedom and yet also convey the sense of propriety in the setting. And and sometimes the sense, not the sense, the reality of complete and total injustice. Oh, yes. The mm-hmm. whole like, no, 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 it doesn't matter that you've got like really great proof of who actually committed this crime and it makes no sense whatsoever to think that that guy committed it because that high-ranking samurai over there said that that third person did it and that means that third person did it and there's nothing you can do about it. It's not like, right, if that's a D&D game and you get that set up, the immediate thought that you have is our job is to figure out a way so that the right person gets convicted. And your character might want to do that, but the whole point in an L5R game might be that you can't. Mm-hmm. You're just... It just is what it is. And and I think, like, knowing if your table is going to accept that kind of injustice or accept that kind of inherent just difference from our, our most likely, you know, the value systems that each of us have, I think you kind of have to be the one to judge if your table's going to accept that or not. One thing that I um, did in... I'm now in the middle of my second campaign in this system. And one thing I did in my first campaign, which was like a Gimpuku plus murder mystery kind of thing, I made it clear to the players that it did not matter, again, if they figured out who did the crime. It did not matter if they figured out how he did the crime. What mattered is that they were able to secure the testimony of a number of people who would point at him in open court and say, yeah, that guy's a, that guy did it. He's a bad guy. And um, some of the people were quite transactional, and some of them were like, oh, yeah, I don't like that clan at all. Yeah, I'll say something. And um, the party was ultimately able to get the guilty party convicted, but they were able to do so because it was politically expedient for the, you know, for the people that were, that were wanting it done. I know that even though I've been doing L5R for ages, I will have a rough time a, a lot of the time. I mean, it depends on the character and the mood and stuff. If it's really like, oh, no, yeah, we just want to frame that guy, and it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, because like you said, all that matters is that you're able to, like, someone's got to take the fall, and your objective is that somebody takes the fall. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and so you may end up with something acceptable-ish within the setting. I mean, it's not really. When you get in your honorable heart of hearts, I think deliberately convic- getting the wrong person convicted does not actually live up to Bushido, but no one will care. 
I mean, that that is the tenet of righteousness. <laughs> uh, and certainly some characters would care more than others. And uh, if you're Scorpion, I don't think you care very much at all. Probably not. But I'm just saying, like, but as a as a player, it is hard to to wrap around that. I mean, for similar sorts of reasons, like, as you mentioned, Rokugan is a horribly awful social structure, which is why most games of Legend of the Five Rings largely ignore that. It's, like, a little bit there in the background, or, if anything, your players are maybe in a position to help out. Like, it's much more often that, I think, that in a game of L5R, you have the the players able to save the village from the evil Ronin who's been terrorizing them and the villagers can't do anything about it because he's still a samurai. I think that's a more common setup than the, yeah, the evil samurai who's terrorizing the villagers actually has a perfect right to terrorize the villagers because he's a lion samurai, these are lion lands, and these are villagers under his jurisdiction, so butt out. I mean, like, that that is a thing that, I mean, you can run your players through that if you want, but that's kind of rough generally, and I would not do that to anyone new to the setting. I mean, it's super awkward. Yeah, one one thing, um, I really like that idea, and one thing I tend to do is I tend to explain to my players that there are no cheat codes in the setting, right? Like, there's no just ignoring Bushido, and that works out for you, and you have a great day, and everyone else has to look like an idiot as they follow this code, and you don't. There is no way to just automatically win. And if you, if you are a problematic person in the society, the society is going to take care of you one way or another, right? Either your lord's going to frown upon your wasting of his resources to talk very terribly about, uh, you know, peasants. Or uh, another samurai is going to um, take insult at your action and challenge you to a duel, or the fortunes themselves are going to reach out and smite you. And so I try and explain to the players that there is an equilibrium, and and maybe that's a little bit more optimistic than this setting really should be. But, you know, I try and explain to them that all actions have repercussions. You have to make the things that matter in the setting matter in the game, too. I mean, you, you made the joke about the scorpion not caring earlier, and it's very easy to take the sort of concept of Scorpion we see where, I mean, ostensibly most of them like just somehow don't care at all about honor or care very little about honor. But if you have a character, Scorpion or otherwise, who does not care at all about honor and acts in a very dishonorable way, and yet it never matters to any NPC that this person is like obviously a dishonorable thug then you're really going to to lose something of the setting. At the same time, it should also be, there should also definitely be times when, man, the players and or the characters really want to do something that's technically dishonorable because it would be so much easier mm-hmm. <laughs> or oh, produce yeah. a so much more reasonable result from the player's point of view. You, you know, you kind of want to tug both ways on that, make it you know, again, make it feel like the setting matters without ticky-tacking people to death about whether or not they remember to say Sama. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I would actually note, and, and this is like old guy stuff at this point, and so new listeners will forgive us, but one thing they've done with the Scorpion is they've kind of normalized them in line with the other clans in terms of 
uh, honor. Um, if you look at like the Yogo school, they start out at 40 honor, which is the exact same amount of honor that the Asawa elementalist school starts out as. And so I think I think the idea that the Scorpion are able to get away with any vile act and that they don't have any regard in their heart for Bushido is a little bit more old school L5R. And new school L5R, I think they're just like slightly more on the dishonorable end. Um, or at least that's how I'm playing them. I have to admit that that's less about... Um that's less about the role-playing game that it's a little bit more about the story because when you see characters in the story they tend to be exemplifying whatever their clan's traits are and and even more so about some group of players they're scorpions they're like the rogues of uh legend of the five rings it's like you know that D player who's like oh you know what would be a great idea? I will steal everyone else's stuff while they're asleep, and then when they go to drink their healing potion, they can't and they die because I stole it. Everyone is always really excited to have that guy at their table. You gotta not let that person play the scorpion, because like once you when you put that mindset together, they think that oh, like it's gonna be all hunky dory and kosher to just go around poisoning people in their sleep or something like that, because that's what scorpion do. Yeah, I have very strong thoughts on Scorpion. I think that they need to be used very sparingly, like the the snidely whiplash, evil mustache twirling kind of stuff. Because otherwise, the setting just breaks down, and like no one would ever talk to a Scorpion. But I, I think we're I think we're probably getting a little bit of field in in talking too too much about Scorpion. You know, some of that goes into bringing a tone of reality mm-hmm. into the setting. In that, there, on the one hand. There are, are there's lots of codified behaviors and stuff and, and notions of ways that people are supposed to act or do act, even if they're not supposed to act that way. And you can sometimes uh, have people be a bit literalist about that. And as a game master, a- anybody generally, but especially if you have new players, is that I think is to recognize that like there is a reality there. It's the sort of thing where like, well, yes, honor matters, but do you think that power doesn't matter? Yeah, of course it does. Or or the whole, like, if you... I mean, this is more of an experienced player thing than a new player thing, but, like, you've got the character who's like, I'm going to make a duelist, and then I'm just going to go around and any time somebody gets in a dispute with me, I'm going to end up, like, forcing them to challenge me to a duel and then just kill them and thus resolve... Or even if it's first blood and thus resolve the dispute in my favor. And it's like, if that seems like it would be completely unworkable as a society, that's probably a good sign that that's not something that should be allowed in your game. And it's like, definitely don't do this as the GM, but I mean, I guess maybe this is more of a new GM experience player thing. Don't let the player do that either. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely no. Duels are really lethal in this. Um, if you are a new GM and you're considering implementing them, they are really lethal and uh, characters are really, really likely to take horrible critical attacks and have arms fall off or die. <laughs> like, really, I can't stress this enough, having having had just a very limited number, whereas skirmishes, um, I actually don't think are very lethal. You know, your character might get knocked out or something like that, but they're not going to have their head explode in quite the same way that it happens in a duel. Um, so yeah, if you have a PC who thinks they've solved the setting, again, if anyone thinks they've solved the setting and it's like, this is the magic cheat code, I'm just going to, I'm a Kikita, I'm going to duel everybody, then you need to introduce them to somebody who is a bigger fish, because there always is a bigger fish. One of the valves that you can have, which could can work for the duelist, uh, if you have that, and can work for other players too, is 
the character's superior, right? Like, you actually have to get permission to enter a lethal duel. And if you're going around starting stupid duels for really no good reason, your lord is going to deny you the right to duel. And then, you know, and if you're going too far, you will be horribly shamed. But you can also, you can do it out of character, but you can also in character, like, kind of put some weight on somebody who's not doing what they're supposed to be. I mean, in an ideal world, you never have to come down on someone who's misbehaving. You are able to just do it through positive encouragement, but that doesn't always work. So if you have a player who's kind of like insistent and you kind of have to step it up a little bit, although at some point I I find myself when I look at like Facebook groups or just other role-playing things, there are way too many times I feel like the answer to the question is, the problem isn't the character, the problem is the player. Like, you're, you're asking me, what do I do to deal with this problem character? And the answer is, you, as a human being, need to have a discussion with the player, as a human being, about what the expectations of the game are, and what what they need to do as a human being to like make sure that they're playing the game in a way that makes it fun for everyone. Yeah, I agree with you completely, Chris. One thing that um, I thought was helpful uh, when my group first started, just because the setting was a bit of a departure for us and like what the table usually role plays, I made them sign like a party charter or like a role playing charter, and I like was like, "I will do this. You will not do that. There will be no murder hobos. I will not penalize you for not knowing the the lore of the setting." I will take your characters into account as I design the game. You will be on time, and please, for the love of God, bring your own snacks. I'm not feeding you. And so I, I just wanted to make it very explicit to the players that this is a different game. This is a different setting. There are different rules. And if you mouth off to your superior, you are a bad samurai. <laughs> it's just a notably different vibe, and I wanted to make sure that everybody was on the same party. And especially if you are worried about one particular character or really one particular player, as you're saying, just deciding that Bushido's for morons, like, uh, maybe this isn't the game for you, or for your table. <laughs> and some of that is, is frankly, can be useful for anything. It, the, the, the possible unfamiliarity of really how this society works can emphasize the, the need for that, but really, you can have that in, in any sort of thing, especially one thing that could come up for example, that depending on your L5 group is PvP, that's mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing that can be discussed. How much, if any, players going at each other is expected or permitted, which is another, which then gets into like the whole multi-clan thing, which we can talk about. But I, I still think my, it's so fundamental, and yet, and it's not specifically L5R, but I'm going to subject you guys to it, to it anyway, because I like it so much. And I think it's so fundamental that... I hadn't even thought about it until I heard somebody articulate it last year. And if I recall correctly, it was Kareem Muammar, who he's one of the, the people who worked on uh, on the Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition. And he was on a podcast, and he said, like, the first two rules of character creation are that your character must want to be a part of the group, mm. and your character must want to do whatever it is that the group is going to be doing. Yes just so fundamental 
you know, somebody will post about like, well, we're we're playing this game that's about going around and uh and like fighting monsters and like, you know, winning combat, but I have this character who's a pacifist and so blah 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 and and, and like and so he doesn't really want to fight and how do I and I'm like, no, no, no. Like you're so you're breaking the rules. You're you're breaking the the session zero compact of making a character who actually wants to be a part of the group and do what the group is doing. Like your 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 character is fundamentally a bad character, either change your character or come up with a new one. Yeah. At some point, you just gotta. There just has to be a compact with with how the the game is is going to work. And part of right, we you know we we've, we've talked a little bit about being a little bit loose with the setting. And one of those is that somehow magically, you don't have to be. I know you don't have to be, and we'll talk about some alternatives, but. There is a reason why we're a bunch of Emerald Magistrates. Or did you notice how everybody got promoted in the Fantasy Flight one? You're actual Emerald Magistrates now, rather than being like assistants to some oh. Emerald Magistrates. I think I've only vaguely paid attention to some of the some of the stuff that they put out. Like that's the straight on from the beginner kit, right? Yeah, and the and the core book. But yeah, so the classic thing is, yeah, you are magistrates, and you have an imperial authority as magistrates which gives you a reason to have a multi-clan group of characters together, even though the clans are all at least a little bit like adversarial to each other. And it gives you a reason to have this group of characters flit from place to place, despite the fact that, you know, the vast majority of people in Rokugan will never leave their home province. Yes. Or even the vast majority of samurai. You know, obviously, the vast majority of people are peasants who don't even get to leave their village. Uh, <laughs> and And on the one hand, I would say, like, you don't have to do that. Like, you absolutely can come up with different ways to do, th- to do things. But on the other hand, especially with a new group of players, you know what? Don't be afraid to just lean into that. There's a reason why it's a classic thing to do. It lets people make much more so the, the characters that they want. It lets the players have more leeway as far as not having to get bound by some ticky-tack things, because it's not necessarily super fun to role-play out how your character is getting, like, the pass necessary to cross over this clan's land and then that. You're going to be like, nope, we're Imperial Magistrates, go. And, going back to some of the things we talked about earlier, by positioning them as Magistrates with a decent amount of independent authority, it gives them more leeway to both accomplish their duty and do what we would consider the right thing of finding the person who's actually responsible for whatever's going on rather than just being dirty politicos so don't don't be afraid to lean into that yeah certainly and i think um it's very likely that the first time you play um people are going to say oh i really want to try this character i really want to try that character Oh, I really want to try, uh, you know, Togashi tattooed order monk or something like that. And then somebody else is like, "Yeah, well, I really want to play a Matsu berserker." And like those guys aren't probably going to want to hang out unless they have something like, uh, you know, an Emerald Magistrate station that they are responsible for I- administering. So yeah, I mean, first time certainly let players experience the setting, let players have fun. There is definitely a reason that magistrates are like the standard thing for people to do in in L five Ardom if you're starting a role playing game. And I think everybody who's played the game for any length of time probably has played in a magistrate game. And it may have started out with the test of the Topaz Championship. 
which is, I think, pretty well done from a super beginner perspective. Although L5R generally doesn't use this technology, but using the having the test of the Topaz Champion really kind of blows it up, which is some of the Session Zero stuff. Like like you talked about, right, the, the Tagashi Tattooed Order Monk and the Matsu Berserker. Even if they're ultimately together because they've all been assigned to work as magistrates together, come up with a reason why the characters knew each other before. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, like, the only reason they're together. Yeah, definitely. We get that they would never have the chance to work together if they hadn't do it. But, you know, it's okay if, hey... This Tagashi had been wandering through Lion Lands two years ago, and so they've actually met before, and he helped out with something, and maybe the Lion resented it, or maybe, you know, like, build, like that, that sort of connection building, I think you see that more and more in role-playing games, and L5R doesn't really have that. You don't have to, because you really don't have a choice but to work together if, like, your Emerald Magistrate's assigned to do whatever. But still, it can help you know, to, to fuse the, the party together instead of just being a bunch of folks who have to hang out. Well, yeah, I think one of the, for me, one of my, my influences when I'm thinking about the setting is the British murder mystery show Midsummer Murders. The listeners probably have no experience with this, but um, in it, inevitably, the murderer is some, like, 90-year-old lady who's mad about something that happened when she was seven. And, like, this, like anger and vengeance and like past relationships like i think all of those are great reasons to connect characters together and it can be just as simple as something as like oh yeah your grandfather helps my grandfather out and so my family will always welcome you in our house something like that that binds the characters together and talks about a shared you know past a shared history and maybe even some shared motivations if suddenly uh you know the the great war that you know grandpa and other grandpa were in some of the motivations for that were called into question or something. I mean, there are a lot of things I think you can do, and Rokugan has such a, a lengthy time period, and all these people that know their lineage for hundreds of years, you know, use that is, is something I would suggest. Yes, right, the focus on the past and focus on ancestors is very important in Rokugan and, and that, and the focus on tradition, and that, right, like what you're suggesting is a good way to wrap that up with character interactions. Now, I also sometimes watch uh, British television shows, but I have to say that you should probably not have a police call box show up in your Rokugan campaign. <laughs> that, uh, I'm trying to think, like, what the Rokugani thing would be. It would be, like, a cord, and it, like, makes a spirit fly out and go to the nearest Shugenja so that, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the spell in 5th edition, the spell that lets you, like, scry through a puddle, and then if you get, like, three advantage or three opportunities, you can then teleport a couple people through it, and they show up soaking wet. It's something, <laughs> like, I absolutely adore. Um, <laughs> it's a great teleportation spell. Yeah, there, there are other things, I think, um, and I think we've talked about them briefly, other reasons to compile parties together. You can have uh, all one clan is always very easy to do, very streamlined. It makes for a lot of party unity in a way that putting multiple clans together doesn't. I think you can say that people are related to each other. Political marriages happen all the time, and certainly you would be more inclined if your cousin was from another clan to treat them generously than if you weren't related to that person at all. And then, of course, there's just flat-out political expediency. Um, You know, you don't, as a GM, need to be constrained by the current alliances and, and, you know, 
petty enmities of the clans. You can make your setting whatever you want, and you can make it where the crane and the lion are best buds, and so that's why your party is uh, half Asahina and half Matsu. To me, there are a lot of options there. You really open it up when you have a, a couple different clans, although, like you said, the, yeah, the, the mono clan thing is is really easy uh, as far as why do these people stick together? Like, um, yeah, they're actually always together. That's just how it works. But you can split them up because there are still enough schools, but one of one of the other upsides of the multi-clan thing is that if if you have a group where most or all of the people want to play Bushi and you're all one clan, mm-hmm. depending on how your players feel about this, it may or may not be much of an issue, but there's a significant amount of mechanical toe-stepping going on at that point. Everybody goes to the same school. Everybody has the same school technique. You- oh yeah, I mean it would be like running, uh, especially out of the out of the gate with no splat books or anything. Like if you picked up fifth edition D anD D and we're like, okay, we're all rogues. It's like <laughs> not a lot of options. In fact, yeah, not a lot of options at all. So I, I do think Chris that your comments make a lot of sense in getting to not just a party alignment or a party configuration that works but then um, an early set of tasks for them to be introduced to the world. Um, And I think this is one of the reasons why oftentimes new games start out as a Gimpuku ceremony. And certainly I think why that beginner box is a pretty good welcoming of players to the setting and to the different systems that the game uses to resolve conflicts uh, via intrigues, mass combats, skirmishes, or duels. Yes, and if you're not familiar with the beginner box, the this beginner box, like many introductory L5R things, is the test of the Topaz Championship that I I mentioned earlier. So that is the classic way to do it. Because it, yeah, it's got a series of tasks built into how the Kempuku ceremony works. And so it makes you go through all these different roles <laughs> and, and to see how the different parts of the game work. And, and I'm not trying to sell the beginner box here, but... Um... One thing that I think that it tries to do is tries to suggest to you that, like, no judge is impartial and that everyone is biased. And that's a good um, kind of segue into um, the different demeanors that characters have and um, getting your players comfortable with what each of the different rings means. Um, I think you'll have to reread over the rings a number of different times and probably should print out the chart for the skills that tells you, like, what the different approaches are and what each of those mean. Now, I think that was something that was challenging for my players originally is to figure out, oh, you're trying to charm somebody. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Now, and of course, charm is actually probably a pretty descriptive word, you know, for a lot of the skills. That is exceptionally useful advice. Honestly, now, now that you, you mention it, it's probably you, you're probably committing malpractice as a GM if you don't make sure that each of your players has sitting in front of them a copy of the yeah the chart that has for this skill group what are the approaches and what are the corresponding rings yeah table 3-1 called choosing skill group skill and approach and that's on page 144 in the core book uh, but yeah it's super duper handy and i think actually um one thing that can be very daunting for a new table and for new gms is just the sheer amount of little finicky bits in the system I and mean, some of it's not particularly intuitive until you've played it a while um and so this list is really really handy in terms of knowing like what the different skills do and what when you should be using them and 
then I think you also should probably print out there are tables for how you can spend opportunity. Um, yes. And holy God, if you don't print that out, everything will grind to a halt as people are trying to figure that out over and over and over again. You can look online. I believe the Facebook group, maybe the Rokugan subreddit. I think there are helpful charts that kind of summarize this. I highly urge your table to print those out because otherwise you'll be like, oh, I'm you know in Earth stance in a duel. What do I do? And then everyone who isn't in the duel has their hair fall out as you're trying to find what those what those opportunity op- options are. <laughs> yes, what, what th- there's another little chart like what are the stances that everyone should probably have that like what even just during a skirmish like what what is the effect of being in this stance when I'm no what does water do again <laughs> yeah and if you're a new GM I would actually suggest like bending a game session on each of the different types of conflict so. Okay, everyone, this is going to be the intrigue session. Okay, this is the mass combat session. And then skirmishes as well, uh, which are just smaller fights and then duels. For intrigues, I think it's a little bit different play, a, a little bit different of a scenario design than maybe I'm used to. I've played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons um, in similar games, and you kind of are just thinking, like, when does the monster jump out, and how do we stab it, and what fire does it shoot? What color is the fire it shoots out? Intrigues are a bit different. You're cramming social conflict into that sort of framework is always harder. I mean, and two of those, like, it doesn't seem to me that it's the end of the world if, like, you play for several months and there isn't a mass combat, you know? <laughs> mm. I, and actually having, um, yeah, that is quite true. Um, I love 5th edition. I really have never run a successful mass combat, and I think I've tried three times now. And each time my players look at me and are like, can we please be done with this? It's just not, I don't find it to be as compelling as um, intrigues or skirmishes or duels. But that's my two cents. Thematically, they're the least important of the things. Not that like war isn't important in Rokugan, but this is a game about a small group of people going around doing whatever. At least the default thing is that there's a small people group of people going around. If you if you want to get really advanced, you can have four players from four different clans who are all courtiers at Winter Court going to cutthroat town on each other. But good lord, don't do that with noobs. Or oh yeah, yeah. Actually, most experienced players, honestly, like I, that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> the setting does encourage like a nice amount of internal political backbiting and like glory hogging and all that. But I think. You really have to know your table to know if that's going to be acceptable or not. That's that's much more of a LARP with 40 people than, than four people around the table. Although they do not each have their own conflict type, right? Your, I, I think your three classic activities in Legend of the Five Rings role-playing are combat, investigation, and then the intrigue-slash-social interaction. Yeah, potentially duels as well. I mean, duels are iconic, but certainly they shouldn't happen as often. Yeah, investigation is interesting. Um, right, there is no investigation skill in this, so that's it's not simple that way, but it's the, right, like, it's just the go around and figure stuff out, right? If, you, there, mm-hmm. if, if there's a crime to be solved, obviously there's going to be social interactions in that, but, right, I if I recall correctly, there is something to be solved in the beginner box, mm-hmm. and then there's another thing to be solved in the... GM kit adventure. 
Yeah, any any adventure that's going to excite players, there's going to be an air of mystery under it as well, I think. So uh, people who've played first, second, third, or for fourth edition of the Legend of Five Rings role-playing game, you might be wondering, where is the investigation skill at? Um, it is gone. New players, it was ubiquitous, and since you were investigating things, it kind of got used as a catch-all for one of the most important activities. And um, so... Uh, on page 170, there's a nice little sidebar that tells you that basically investigating anything is now subsumed under the relevant skill. So investigating a katana is now subsumed under martial arts melee, or investigating a battlefield is using the tactics skill. And, and uh, I think it's an elegant approach, it's really nice, and it makes it where people can't just dump points into investigate and then magically notice everything about everything at all possible times and locations. Yeah, and, and every once in a while it lets the GM do something like, oh, you'd like to try to figure out like how this guy died? Well, you can see that there are slashes in the fabric of his kimono. Test design. <laughs> None of you took it, did you? Not a one of you. <laughs> I think that brings me actually to, to referencing the article that you wrote on uh, strangeassembly.com um, that talks about, um, at least briefly, some of the utility of the different skills um, in the game. I think not all skills are created equal, and certainly if you look through the um, shuji, there are certain skills that are used over and over and over again. And then there are certain skills like design, actually, I think is a good one, or aesthetics, where there's almost no shuji that reference them. And you can contrast that with like performance, where performance, there, there are many things where you're distracting people or um, inspiring people on a battlefield. But like, if you're good at design, then okay, cool. The designers haven't, you know, come up with something for you to do with that skill yet. Um, and so I think just a quick discussion of a couple skills to hype to your party so that they don't feel like they've wasted their points uh, might be helpful. Let's, let's see. Thing, things that you should take. I think the number one thing is do please take courtesy. Behaving appropriately is good. It's going to be tested, especially if we're talking about new players. That makes it very easy for your GM to be like, oh, you said what? Well, roll me water courtesy. Oh, okay. While you're trying to charm them, you realize that, you know, actually, this is the better way to phrase that. And so you make sure to, you know. <laughs> hmm. So one thing I think is helpful, especially for new players, is you can provide a GM avatar character who's maybe an old lady or an old man who knows a ton about history, but who isn't going to get their hands dirty or isn't going to get in a fight or anything like that, but who can be there to say, oh, yes, uh, the Asahina are pacifists because blah, 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 blah. So that way your characters, <laughs> you know, so that it feels like you're helping them with the fluff instead of just penalizing them for for having not read Way of the Crane 23 years ago. It is okay for you as the game master to be direct, even if a character would not be. So, so for example, like it's, I mean, but one, I, I mean, you could say, hey, what's the skill role to, to know something about the Asahina when you meet one? Like, I guess that would be, uh, that would be culture. But you also, I mean, like, it is okay if it's baseline stuff to be like, oh, you know, he is introduced as Asahina so-and-so. You know that the Asahina are X. Like, you as the Game Master are just allowed to say that. Or if, you know, you are playing the courtier, 
and right if you're if you're role playing as a courtier and right there's this whole notion of everything is in hidden messages and code and saying everything obliquely it's the sort of thing where i mean even even outside of rokugan you can sometimes get like these interactions bogged down in a role playing session where it's not clear whether or not the player is actually getting what it is that you're trying to convey so it it is okay i'm not like you may not have to do this but like it is okay to have something like you say something in character and then out of character you can say to the player like oh you can tell that he's offering to trade you this for that it is allowable for you as the gm to do that you don't have to just stare at the player until they cry because they don't know what it is that you're trying to convey. I completely agree. Um, I think the Shuji uh, cadence is the Shuji that lets you like subtly imply things that just one other character gets. And um, I had a character that was trying to imply something to one of my PCs. And um, I was able to think of something off the cuff that I thought was pretty clever. But then like, there are many times that I'm role playing and it's like 10 o'clock at night and I had a, you know, full work day and I'm just not super socially adept. And I also don't want to leave out players who um, maybe aren't able to off the cuff imply something indirectly. And so um, I'll let, you know, I'll let my players say I'm trying to imply X, Y, or Z. And uh, I, I think enabling each other to to be a little direct can work out sometimes, especially if your players are are less comfortable with that kind of off-the-cuff, um, subtle implication of things. The subtlety just kind of enhances it, but honestly, it's just... Sometimes directness is just helpful, even if you think you're you're saying directly, right? There's a lot of things where... I think phrased this way, it's talking about writing, but like, unless you... It, if you don't feel like you're hitting the reader over the head with a hammer, they aren't going to get it. Right, it, it's the sort of thing where, like, whatever whatever your mystery is, or your social scheming is, or whatnot, you it's so easy in in all sorts of fields, role playing game or not. Like, when you're the one who's putting something together, you know what you meant, you know what the solution is, and it's very easy to look at what you have and think that it is so obvious or oh yeah the players will be able to figure this out and like it's theoretically possible that they're going to figure out but you kind of want to prepare for the possibility that they're not going to and recognize that the game is more fun if you at some point like just gotta nudge it along by you know so it and like i said that is true of role-playing games generally one of the ways that l5r can further get into that is is the social stuff i mean because not even like i mean you're talking about cadence or I mean, I mean like just a flat out like this npc is having a normal old conversation with your you know with your player character and like the player just doesn't seem to be getting it like you can if it's something that the characters would get or you know reasonably should get like, you just tell them or if you i mean if, if if you're not comfortable doing that as a gm i think you should be but like it is okay if the player doesn't seem to get it. You know, you can fall back on the, like, okay, roll. And if you feel like you need the justification, you know, for, let quote-unquote, letting the player... No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and for us, like my table, we're starting role-playing after a full day of work. Most of us have kids. 
we are tired and old and I, uh, you know, certainly you don't want the game to get bogged down because somebody doesn't have the energy after <laughs> a relatively long day to roleplay the, the finer points of being a doji courtier. But we had, let's see, you had asked about the skills. So let, let's be, let's try to be very blunt about these things. One, the artisan skill group is, is useless unless your shtick is that you want to be an artisan. And then, you know, make sure to have that and also make sure to have the fire ring because the the fire approach is create or invent i guess and this isn't necessarily the case but usually if you have a character who's an artisan you want to be able to create new art yes i would say a minor point um is that composition uh can be used by shugenja to write a spell out ahead of time i believe yes that's like the only explicit use of those i would say that like if you're a GM and a character wants to spend points in those, then you should find a way to reward them and have someone compliment them on their art or have somebody compliment them on, you know, the, um, I'm trying to think of other things, uh, what their clothing is or something like that, like signal to the player that their concept, you know, their, their character concept is, is rewarded and valued and not just that they didn't dump all their points into courtesy so that they're a bum. Probably the, easiest way to do that is that if you have social stuff and you mostly should have that in some sessions like it can matter like if if your character has like you know design that covers clothing right and that's one of the things that you know about like say the crane that people would traditionally laugh about is right that they're trendsetters like if you have a character who's like i'm gonna play a crane artist a crane courtier type with you know who's really good at design and is really like have it matter. Have them like walk into court and make it clear to that player into the group that people think more highly of this character because wow, they are really pulling it off. They are, you know, that that it it actually matters and it gets them access more and it gets them, you know, people who pay attention to them more than the character who has put nothing whatsoever into these social skills and the player still wants to be able to come in and like, not that you want to exclude that character and player from participating in the social scenes, but just like the, the courtier is not going to be good as good at stabbing stuff on the battlefield as the Bushi is. The, the Bushi should not be as good in court as the courtier is like that player. And that character is designed around a concept. Make sure that they are rewarded for it when they're in their element. Yeah, certainly. And and to me, just the artisan skills group, like it's an opportunity to show that Rokugan's like a you know, high school and like really quickly, you know, they size up the new kid in the cafeteria and they're like, Oh, okay, you're you're one of us or you're one of them or yeah, come over here, we'll give you some good gossip, you know, if you if you have a particularly great uh OB on or something like that. <laughs> as far as social skills, um, I think your your write up basically just said, boy, isn't courtesy really good? And then command is occasionally good, but courtesy is really good. It is. It is. Games, on the other hand, pretend like it's an artisan skill, it's not for anything. I have to admit I'm baffled that games exists just as I am that seafaring exists. Like it just doesn't feel like they need to be skills, but who knows? I, I actually was able to work games into my first campaign where like a character realized that another character was pretending to be blind based on a particularly good games role. The old man tried to 
fake somebody out playing uh, shogi or whatever. And so that, that was like what cracked the case for, for them that I had to kind of reach for that to make the game skill worthwhile. Yeah, that's kind of like the artisan thing we're talking about. Like, on the one hand, you as a player, hey, you, you may or may not get to use this, but, you know, hey, GM, if you have that player, note that at least if somebody actually invests multiple skill ranks in games or something, hey, maybe there's a reason why it matters. And you can do similar sort of things to Artisan, right? You can have a character who challenges you to a game of something, and even if you lose, if you're reasonably competent at it, they may respect you more. Because, right, Shogi being the traditional one, you know, your skill at that supposedly showing off. Scholar skills, a number of these are kind of important. I think sentiment is pretty important for most characters, and theology obviously is a super dominant skill for Shugenja to have. Yes. All the, all the theology you can get. If you're Shugenja, yeah. In general, like, I mean, theology, but like whatever your your spells and skills and Shuji and all that, I mean, whatever, make sure that you have the skills to support those, because things that are super lame include acquiring some technique that you can't actually use because it ha- needs a skill you don't have. For for martial skills, pick one and <laughs> go with it. I mean, that's not a... Th- fitness, um, I think actually players might underrate how important fitness is. Depending on what kind of map style you're using, either you're using the, like, squares battle map kind of variant of the game, or you're using the vague and very challenging for me to understand range band system. Uh huh. Fitness is really good, and it's really good as like an anti-critical hit measure. And then, uh, you know, meditation has a place in in dueling, and tactics is good for initiative and for large-scale combats. But you can't take everything, right? And then trade skills are for lowly peasants. You can mostly, mostly ignore the trade skill group if you so choose. The one, the one and a half notes are. Skullduggery is, in fact, useful for investigating criminal stuff because it, it's just like you would need medicine if you want to, like, investigate something relating to a disease. If you're investigating someone engaged in criminal activity, like, you're going to have to roll Skullduggery to recognize what kind of drug that is or to know about this sort of technique that they might be using. So, Skullduggery, I think, by far, most useful trade skill. And then it's it's theoretically possible that survival comes up, but that really kind of depends on your game. You could go an entire campaign never ever rolling that, or I yeah. guess you could go a campaign where your GM's like, okay, first session, you're going up into the mountain, folks. I-, <laughs> I I actually think that commerce is, to me, the pretty clear second most important trade skill group. If you look at the Ikoma, they have like tributary I think it's tributaries of trade or they they have a number of Shuji that they get early on that are based on commerce, um, as do the Yasuki, as do the um Ide traders. Um and it's useful if you're trying to procure something and the way that the game kind of just hand waves that, like, oh, I've had this all along, if you have the right Shuji, is charming to me. And if you are a mantis character, then the much mocked seafaring is probably really important. clearly you don't like it but you know it's a thing for that sort of character i don't know and then i know a couple of the ones that i got a little bit of disagreement on were culture and government and i guess that depends on how much those are both useful i think yeah i think it depends on how much you have to 
you're, you're they actually make you roll that. But like if you've got the characters that are going around from place to place, culture is the skill that you use to know local customs, know who that samurai is, know what's going on. It's and again, like you know, you as the GM shouldn't be punishing people a bunch for that, but it it can still be handy and and, and again with government like you. I believe a water government role is the role to know what the law is, which can yeah. be rather important if you're a magistrate character, because technicalities can be a huge deal. Or, or even if you're just trying to like use the law as like part of a justification for an intrigue, you know, I, I if my characters make any kind of legal argument whatsoever, I force them to, to roll government unless they can give me one hell of an explanation why they shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I think I think for People who are not Shugenja government is government might be the second most important of those s- scholar mm. skills. I don't know. I mean, well, because sentiment probably is the most important. Yeah, sentiment's really important. Yeah. If you're a Shugenja, theology is the most important. Sentiment's useful for everyone. Yeah. One of the things I like about sentiment, and this ties a little bit into the, this then goes into the approaches, is that sentiment is useful across a lot of approaches. So there's a lot of different ways to figure out if somebody is BSing you. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of nice because there are some other things that are, are more focused on. Like, if you are going to be tricksy, you need an air ring. Like, Full stop. Yeah, I, you, you just do. Like, you need the air ring. If you look at the void approaches and think that, wow, these don't have a lot of use, you're right. Many of the void approaches are like completely meaningless. Yeah, void void is just a less useful ring, I think. Yeah, I mean it, which is fine. It it, it does other things about like setting your minimums and and but yeah, you uh, you know like uh, for what you can level up other rings, but yeah, void is definitely less useful. It is I mean, w- water has a lot of handiness. I mean, right? It's the flexible thing for social skills. It's charming. That is pretty generic way to approach social situations for for the scholar group it's kind of like figuring generally figuring out what's going on in a broad sense that's again like a pretty standard thing that you're going to need to do you can also go earth right which is then going to be i'm reasoning with someone or i'm trying to like remember things but fire is a lot harder to work into, say, scholar and social skills, as compared to artisan, where it gets kind of central. For scholar skills, I think, like, fire is useful if you're trying to, like, figure out what kind of monster made this, or something like that, you know, if you don't have the recollection of it, you know, having fought that monster before, um, you could theorize something about it. I think it's easier for me to think of fire as, like, somebody, like, passionately arguing about something, or, um, you know... Yeah, yelling. <laughs> My brain just thinks yelling. But um Yeah, the the social version is insight, which which has its uses, but is is definitely a narrower approach than reason or charm or trick. Yes. It just definitely is. For the martial stuff though, or like anything that stops me from getting uh <laughs> strife. Yeah. <laughs> so if your character's fighting, I, I think there are ups and downs to all of them, but it's probably you don't want to have like two different ways of being aggressive uh, as like your better rings. I mean, mm. you don't want to have some ability to switch it up in combat. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this actually gets to your to your next point. 
which is just that in the article you say that characters at character creation from a purely mechanistic standpoint it's probably best to unbalance your rings so you wind up with an array that has two threes a two and then two ones um, which is also a lot of fun to roleplay, by the way. Um, you know, early characters have, like, very glaring weaknesses in their rings. You know, like, every character is going to be bad, like, really bad at something. And that is a you know, efficient way from, like, an experience standpoint. All of the things being equal, it's probably more interesting to play a character who's really good at some things and really bad at other things. My other usual theory on that, which doesn't, I guess, does not have a ton of applicability to L5R, is that all of the things being equal, it's more interesting to be the glass cannon, to be really good at doing something, but then be kind of vulnerable. Sorry, crab. Well, I mean, right? I mean, cr- it- crab are <laughs> crab are weak to intrigue, and uh, you know, probably have weak uh, fire rings, I guess, or air. Probably weak air, right? Even within the realm of, of combat, though, like like specifically within combat, I if I if I'm just talking about combat, I all other things being equal, I'm gonna find it usually to be more interesting to have a character who can like have a solid damage output or do interesting things, but then maybe they get beaten down a little easier, as opposed to the same fight, but now I'm playing a character whose main benefits are defensive, where, like, I'm just good at turtling up and not getting hit and not taking damage, but I'm not necessarily accomplishing a lot. The former more interesting to me than the the latter, but you can have that that same sort of concept can be out there in the, you know, in social stuff, too. Like, maybe you have a character who's very charming, but maybe is not great at keeping their emotions under control, you know, as opposed to, like, I must always be the character who is super reserved and successfully meets every social expectation of me. Thus, you know, like, yeah, like let yourself unmask, right? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think players should be more than willing to let themselves unmask. I I think what I would say, one of the really great things about the way that the system is set up is that each ring has um, utility. And then there are, uh, you know, Kata and especially Shuji that um, each character can use. And so even if a character is like a gruff, uh, you know, Hida, Bushi, or uh, Daidoji, both of those are going to have really good earth rings. They can still use something like Stonewall Tactics, where they basically just like stand in front of another courtier and like force people to talk to them instead of their their friend as their friend, you know, wheedles and, and deals behind behind his back. Um, and so there's cool things for every character to do, and actually I think that's one of the most exciting parts about the setting to me, is that there there are opportunities for characters to influence uh, the world and the you know social setup, social setup in, in intrigues. I think that kind of takes it back around as we are hopefully approaching the end to, to sort of where we began, right? Which is, make the setting matter for the players, make the social structure matter for the players, but don't forget that you still want to let the players feel awesome. Yes. And you still want to let the characters do cool things. So it may be a different sort of cool thing, or they accomplish the cool thing in a different way than they might in some other setting. But you want there to be coolness accomplished, not just stifling social order and repression of emotion in all things. Yes, that it, that would be a very boring game that I don't think many tables would be excited about. Um, there should be a fair amount of, like, 
really cool, fun, happy stuff that excites your table. But also maybe with some fans, too. And and whispers. <laughs> All right. Yeah, any closing thoughts for us? No. Okay, then. I, I don't. I'm old and tired. <laughs> so say we all. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can download this podcast there. And I want to say that you can download it in iTunes in the Apple Podcast app, but I think iTunes and I are actually having a little um, argument about the art for the podcast. So I'm not positive about that right now, but hopefully you can, right? You can, <laughs> if you do find us on iTunes, we always appreciate it if you leave us a rating, a review. That helps other people find the show. We're on the usual social media, so you can find us. We're facebook.com slash strangeassembly, at strangeassembly on Twitter, and strangeassembly on Instagram. If you think we're really that awesome, and, and we are, aren't we? You can also visit us at patreon.com slash strangeassembly and help support the show and the website. You can also reach me directly. I'm chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear your feedback and comments and criticism and so forth. But until then, for Slavin, I am Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.